when uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama speaks to a general audience, then he makes a certain division, which is uh, very helpful, I believe. He speaks of uh, three divisions, Buddhist science, Buddhist philosophy, and Buddhist religion. When we talk about uh, Buddhist science, we're talking about the science of emotions, how the mind works, what he calls mental and emotional hygiene. So Buddhism has uh, a very detailed analysis of all the various emotional states and how they work, how they go together, etc. There's also cognitive science in terms of uh, how our perception works, the nature of consciousness itself, what is it, the various types of trainings that help us to develop concentration, quite a detailed analysis of cosmogony, how the universe starts, how it endures and ends, and also a detailed analysis of uh, uh, matter and energy, subatomic particles, etc., medicine, and how the energies in the body work. All of this is in the sphere of Buddhist science. And this is something that uh, anybody can learn from, anybody can uh, profit from or benefit from. And uh, Dalai Lama holds uh, many discussions with scientists about this. Then there's uh, Buddhist philosophy, the second division. And this includes things like uh, ethics. So the discussion of basic human values that are not necessarily related to any religion. Anybody can... uh, benefit from these type of basic human values like kindness, generosity, etc. And there's a very detailed presentation of logic and uh, metaphysics that has to do with set theory, universals, particulars, this type of thing, qualities, characteristics, how they work together and how we know them. Detailed analysis of causality, cause and effect, and the basic understanding of reality and uh, how our projections distort reality. So that uh, whole sphere of uh, Buddhist philosophy is something which is not necessarily limited to uh, Buddhists. This is again something that everybody can benefit from. And then the third division is Buddhist religion. This is the actual sphere of Buddhist practice having to do with things like karma and rebirth ritual practices like mantra, recitation, visualization, etc. So that's the actual sphere of the Buddhist religion and what is uh, specific for people who follow the Buddhist path. So if we think in terms of this threefold division, Buddhist science, philosophy, and uh, religion, then we can examine how our topic, these three trainings, fit into that context. So what are these three trainings? First one is in uh, ethical self-discipline, and this means refraining from destructive behavior. So the discipline to actually get us to do that, to uh, stop acting in destructive ways, basically self-destructive ways, and to engage in constructive behavior. So this is uh, the first training, discipline, but it's ethical discipline and ethical self-discipline. It's not that we are trying to discipline others, not like we're training our dog. Second training is in concentration, and this is uh, to get our mind focused so that we don't constantly have mental wandering with all sorts of extraneous thoughts, and our mind is uh, not dull, but is uh, sharp and focused. And uh, also, what's necessary for concentration is that we have emotional stability as well. So we're not upset emotionally by anger or attachment or jealousy or anything like that. So we need mental stability and emotional stability. And then the third training is in the discriminating awareness. Discriminating awareness, we need to understand what uh, that's talking about. It sounds like a technical term, doesn't it? But it's the ability to discriminate or differentiate between what is to be accepted and adopted, and what's to be rejected. It's like, for instance, when you go shopping, and uh, there's a whole section of vegetables that you're buying, you discriminate between, well, this one doesn't look very good, that one looks very good. So you discriminate between them, what's to be accepted, what's to be rejected. But that discriminating awareness can be on much more profound level than just shopping for vegetables. We have this discriminating awareness in terms of our behavior, 
what is appropriate behavior, what's inappropriate behavior, depending on what the circumstances are, the people that we're with, etc., and much uh, deeper to discriminate between reality and what are our projections of fantasy. So these are our three trainings in ethical self-discipline, concentration, and discriminating awareness. Now, these three can be presented simply in terms of Buddhist science and philosophy, which then can be applicable and appropriate for anybody, or they can be presented in terms of both that and Buddhist religion. So that corresponds to a uh, division scheme that I myself like to use between what's called Dharma light and the real thing Dharma. Like Coca-Cola light and the real thing Coca-Cola. So Dharma light is uh, practicing the methods from Buddhist uh, science and philosophy just for the sake of improving this lifetime. And the real thing Dharma is adopting these three for the sake of the three Buddhist goals, a better rebirth or liberation from rebirth or enlightenment. So when we speak of Dharma light, I usually speak of that in terms of uh, a uh, preparation for the real thing Dharma, sort of the preliminary step that uh, you recognize that I need to work on just improving my ordinary life in order to then think of further spiritual goals. But if we think just in terms of Buddhist science and philosophy, it doesn't have to be a preliminary to Buddhist religion. It can just be for absolutely anybody. So that's the level which I'd like to discuss the topic in just a general basic uh, guidelines and advice of how we can use these three trainings to improve our life, whether we think in terms of a preliminary to a Buddhist path or we think of it just in general for anybody. Now, I suppose we would call this uh, in the sphere of Buddhist philosophy. We have a general presentation of the way in which Buddhist thinking works. It's usually called the Four Noble Truths, but you can think of it just in terms of four facts of life. Looking at suffering and problems that we all face. That's the first. So, it's a fact. We all, everybody faces problems. Life is difficult. And the second fact is that these problems come from causes. Third fact is that there is such a thing as a stopping or getting rid of the problems. It's not that we are condemned to always experience them and we have to just shut up and accept it. And the fourth fact is that the way that we get rid of the problems is to get rid of the causes of the problems. And that is by means of following some sort of, usually called a path, but it's referring to a way of understanding, a way of acting, a way of speaking, and so on. So if our faulty way of acting and speaking, communicating, and thinking is causing our problems, then we have to change that. And these three trainings then are part of what we need to do to get rid of the causes of our problems. So this is a very helpful way of understanding these three because uh, it indicates why we would train in them. If we're having uh, difficulties uh, in life, then uh, we see, well, is there a problem in my ethical discipline of how I act? Is there a problem in my concentration? I'm just all over the place in an emotional mess. Is there a problem in my way of especially differentiating between reality and my crazy projections? And this can apply to our ordinary life in this lifetime, or it can be in terms of the problems that we might encounter with future lives, with rebirth in general, with our limitations in helping others, so more spiritual goals. But I think on a beginning level, we need to uh, really consider these trainings just in terms of our everyday life. How can they help us? What are we doing that's causing our problems, and what can we do to alleviate that? What changes can we make? Okay. Now, in general, we would say that from the Buddhist point of view, Buddhist philosophy again, that uh, the cause of suffering is our unawareness. So we're, we're unaware. We just don't know two things, or we're confused about two things. So first thing that we are unaware of is basically cause and effect, and cause and effect in terms of our behavior. This is uh, saying that if we have disturbing emotions under the influence of anger or greed or attachment, 
pride, jealousy, etc., then we act destructively. We yell at people because we are uh, angry, we do things that hurt them, or we cling on to them, and uh, this causes uh, problems. And uh, all of this, as a result, brings us unhappiness, doesn't it? So this is the first problem. The problem is unhappiness. And uh, where does our unhappiness come from? It comes from acting destructively because of these disturbing emotions. Speaking, acting, behaving in a way which is completely stupid. It's self-destructive, basically. It's very helpful to look at the definition of a disturbing emotion. It's a state of mind which, uh, when it arises, we lose our peace of mind and we lose self-control. We yell at somebody out of anger and it may upset them, it may not upset them. They may not hear what we say, they may just laugh and think we're stupid. But we have no peace of mind, we're really emotionally upset, our energy is upset, and that lasts after we stop yelling, and that's an unpleasant experience. And we lose self-control because we say things that later we might regret. So, we act in that way because we really don't understand cause and effect. If we act in this type of way, under the influence of these type of disturbing emotions, it's going to make us unhappy. Or we're confused about it, we understand it in the opposite way. We think, well, if I yell at this person, it'll uh, make me feel better, which of course it never does. Because of attachment, you yell at somebody. Why don't you call more often? Why don't you come and see me more often? And of course that just chases them away, doesn't it? It doesn't accomplish what we want. So we're confused about cause and effect. And the uh, second type of uh, unawareness, the second topic that we are confused about or we just don't know, is about reality. So here, because of confusion about reality, we get disturbing attitudes. So one example of that would be self-preoccupation. We're always thinking of me, 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 and myself, and how I should be, and being very judgmental. And then you get a whole syndrome of, I have to be perfect, and you get perfectionism, for example. And uh, even if we act in a constructive type of way, trying to be perfect and get everything in order and so on, then uh, it's very compulsive, isn't it? And although we might temporarily be happy, it changes very, very quickly to unhappiness and dissatisfaction. You know, we still think, but I'm not good enough. And then you have to try more and more and push yourself. Easy example is uh, somebody who's a perfectionist in terms of cleaning their house under the misconception that you could somehow control everything and keep everything in order and clean. Well, that's impossible, isn't it? So you get everything clean, you try to make it perfect, and you feel very good, and then the children come home, and (laughs) they mess it up, and you're dissatisfied, and you have to clean it again. And it's compulsive, isn't it? And every time that you finally feel a little bit of happiness, ah, now it's in order, goes very quickly, doesn't it? Notice the spot that you miss. <laughs> and then by repeating these states of mind, whether it's this disturbing emotion or a disturbing attitude, and repeating this type of compulsive behavior, then you get what we call the all-pervasive suffering. And all-pervasive suffering is talking about how we build up the habits of all of this so that we perpetuate our problems. They just repeat over and over again because we've made it such a habit of constantly cleaning or constantly losing our temper. And it affects our bodies as well. We're always angry and so on and so then we have high blood pressure and you get an ulcer from worrying and this type of thing. Or you're a perfectionist, everything has to be clean in order so you're always tense aren't you? You, know, you never relaxed because, oh, I have to be on guard in case dirt comes in. So, what we need are these three trainings. We need uh, discriminating awareness to get rid of this uh, unawareness, this confusion. Like, for instance, it's impossible to control the orderliness and cleanliness of my house. That's impossible. And so you need to differentiate, to discriminate between this fantasy that you have that uh, somehow everything could be perfect and under control and me, I'm the one who could control it, you have to see that this is absurd. It doesn't refer to reality. I mean, of course, you try to keep your house clean, but you don't feel as though 
I have to get it so that it never gets dirty. Of course it's going to get dirty. So you're more relaxed. So this discriminating awareness between what's reality, that of course it's going to get dirty, nobody can control that, and the fantasy, this is like the axe, it said. The texts use the example of cutting down a tree. So this is like the sharp axe to uh, cut through our confusion. But in order to cut down the tree with this axe, you need to always hit it in the same place. And so this is concentration. If our mind is wandering and so on, and you're distracted, then you lose that discriminating awareness. Or if we're emotionally upset, also you lose that discrimination. So we need concentration to always hit with the axe the same place. But in order to use that axe, we need to have strength. If you don't have the strength, you can't even pick it up. And that strength comes from self-discipline, ethical self-discipline. So this is uh, the uh, way in which uh, we can understand these three trainings in this context of what can we do to overcome the source of our problems. And as I said, we can then apply this in a Buddhist science philosophy type of way to our ordinary lives. Okay, let's take a moment to just digest that before we go on. We want to use this uh, discriminating awareness between reality and fantasy so that we understand clearly cause and effect in terms of my behavior and reality. Because uh, when I'm confused about this, or I don't realize that this is the cause of my problems, then I create, by my behavior and uh, my attitude, I create either being unhappy or having the type of happiness that never satisfies and I get dissatisfied. As in the example of the one hand always losing my temper or always nagging somebody, why don't you call me, why don't you come more often? And the other side, being a perfectionist, need the discrimination. Understand that acting under this uh, confusion just uh, causes problems. But to understand that and apply that, I need to stay focused on it, so I need concentration. And in order to concentrate, I need discipline so that uh, when my mind wanders away, I bring it back. And I want to apply all of these trainings and develop myself in these, basically in order to get rid of my problems and be happy, improve the quality of my life. Okay? So, digest that for a moment. Okay, I think the real key, the key insight that uh, we need to gain in all of this is that the unhappiness and dissatisfaction that I have in life is basically coming from my confusion. Rather than blaming all our problems on uh, others, and on circumstances, society, or economics, or whatever, but uh, to focus on a deeper level. We may have economic problems, financial problems, and difficult situations in family, sickness, and so on. That's one thing. But here, we're talking on a, a deeper level, which is our state of mind in dealing with these situations. We may have a lot of difficult situations, but here we're talking about, in general, feeling unhappy or feeling type of happiness which never lasts and is never satisfying. And we want something better than that, a type of happiness which is with peace of mind and more lasting. We could face a difficult situation with depression and being absolutely miserable, or we can face it with more peace of mind because uh, we see more clearly what's happening, what's involved, what are the ways to deal with it. I'm not just feel sorry for ourselves. Or uh, you have a child, and the child goes out at night, and then you're really worried about are they going to get home safely, and this sort of thing. And so, again, it's this attitude that somehow I can be in control of the safety of my child, which is, of course, a fantasy. And they come home safely, and you feel happy, you feel relieved, but the next time they go out, again, you worry. <laughs> so that type of feeling at ease doesn't last, does it? 
and then we're always worried. So it perpetuates. We've made it into such a habit that we worry about everything. And it affects our health. It's a very unpleasant state. So the real key is to understand that the cause of all of this is my confusion. I think that acting in a certain way is going to make me happy, or I think that my attitude about reality, that I can be in control, is correct. It's not. So we have to cut through this. This is absurd. And uh, stay with that. Stay focused on that and have the strength to always stay focused. Okay, so this is a general idea of the three trainings. Any questions about that before we go into what are the three trainings? How do you train in them? Yeah. Uh, Can you say something about the sequence of uh, adopting these trainings? Is there any sequence or we do it at the same time? In terms of the sequence... There are several sequences in which it's presented. I'll discuss that. But uh, the basic training that you start with is uh, the discipline. If you can discipline your way of acting and speaking, then that gives you the strength to be able to discipline your mind with concentration. And then when you're able to use concentration, you can develop this discriminating awareness. But then there's another presentation which says that if you can develop this discrimination then you will act and speak and so on in a proper way. So you get the discipline following from that. And then that leads to concentration. And with the concentration, then you can get back into the discriminating awareness. However, when we have trained sufficiently in these three, then we combine them and apply all of them at the same time together. The question is about the difference between perfectionism and efficiency because uh, there is a very thin line, a uh, very subtle line, uh, which differs them. For example, if you are a manager and you have some people around you who is working, if you are not a perfectionist, you might don't care about what they're doing and be less effective. Uh, and how to deal with that without how to find this balance of effectiveness and perfectionism? The difference, I think, between being efficient and uh, trying to be a perfectionist has to do with this uh, self-preoccupation. Perfectionism has this whole idea that I have to be perfect. It's a focus on me. I have to be able to control everything so that it is perfect. And because it is based on this uh, fantasy that it is possible for me to control everything, independent of all the other causes and circumstances and situations, you're always tense. It's a disturbing attitude. So, back to the definition, you don't have peace of mind when you're a perfectionist, because you're always tense that something might go wrong, and then I have to correct it, and if it goes wrong, it's my fault. And being a perfectionist, you tend to lose self-control, so that uh, you yell at your workers if they're late or they're not doing something correctly. Being efficient doesn't have to do with an ego trip of me, I have to be perfect. Efficient is just seeing what uh, works, what doesn't work, and just doing things in the way that is optimal. But to actually be efficient, you need to be realistic. And being realistic means that you know that sometimes your workers get sick, sometimes uh, the machinery breaks, and you're not tense that, oh, I have to be in control of it. You deal with whatever happens. This one is sick, so you substitute. The machine breaks, okay, so today we're not going to be as productive as uh, the other days, and you get it fixed. So you're much more relaxed. So this works in terms of uh, business, works in terms of your family, works in terms of your personal life, and so on. Someone in the back had a question? So the question is about ethics. In some books and texts, uh, I've met uh, the description of some great teachers who wasn't behave themselves ethically. For example, in different countries, if we do not make uh, strict uh, definitions in different countries, uh, there are different customs. For example, in uh, ancient Greece, it was normal to live with a young boy. But my question is not about a young boy. And uh, uh, my idea is that maybe... Uh, this ethics, it is just a way of uh, devising uh, in a different categories, and it's very conventional for different cultures. Is it so? Well, you've asked two questions here. So, uh, first, in terms of reading about uh, various teachers who act in an unethical type of way, you have to make a differentiation between 
those who are acting improperly because they're really not qualified teachers, and so they're abusive teachers, and there are certainly many examples of that, and there are those that are acting in a a strong way for a specific purpose that uh, it's uh, going to be of benefit. So, for instance, uh, my own teacher, Sirkum Rinpoche, always used to scold me and call me an idiot. That was practically the only name that uh, he used for me. Because I came to him coming from a strong Harvard background where I excelled and I was very arrogant. So his scolding me was very, very helpful, actually, because it pointed out to me that I really was an idiot and I wasn't so smart, and it helped me very much to develop humility. It was very, very helpful. So he was acting in this scolding manner, which could be destructive in certain contexts, but he was acting like that out of a motivation to try to help me. He wasn't acting like that out of a motivation of being angry with me or wanting to hurt me. So that's the difference. Now, in terms of cultural aspects of uh, ethics, there are certain acts which are uh, said to just be naturally destructive. For instance, killing. So, for instance, if you have a culture which says that uh, if uh, you kill somebody in my family, I have to kill somebody in your family out of revenge, and according to their system of ethics, this is correct. And if I don't kill somebody in revenge, then that's wrong. Well, just from a natural point of view, that's that's still destructive. Their ethics is uh, a bit distorted about that point. Whereas if you have uh, a cultural ethic which says that women must always wear a scarf over their head, well, that wearing of a scarf isn't in itself destructive. It's a neutral act. And so that's culturally specific. So we need to differentiate in terms of uh, ethics, certain things that are naturally destructive and certain things that are considered improper or destructive just within a a certain framework and not a general framework. Anything else? Good. Then let's uh, continue. When we uh, train in these three trainings, one way or one presentation of how it's done is with what's called the Eightfold Path. So this is uh, eight types of practices or things that we train in that are going to uh, develop these three aspects, ethical self-discipline, concentration, and discriminating awareness. And each of these eight have an incorrect way of applying it, which we want to rid ourselves of, and a correct or right form that we want to adopt. So let's start with ethical discipline. We have three aspects here, three practices. What's called right speech, so way of speaking, communicating. The technical term is the boundary of our actions. In other words, how are we going to act? What is the boundary that we don't go beyond in terms of our physical behavior? And then right livelihood, how we make a living. So in each of these, they entail refraining from a destructive way of speaking, destructive way of acting, destructive way of making a living, and engaging in a constructive way of each of these that will benefit others. So, with each of these, let's look at what would be considered wrong speech, type of speech which would cause unhappiness and problems. So, the first one is lying, saying what's not true. So, this is basically deceiving others. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that if we are known to be somebody who lies, somebody who cheats and deceives others in terms of what we say, then uh, nobody's going to believe us. Nobody's going to trust us. So this is uh, an unhappy, unsatisfactory situation then. The uh, second destructive way of speaking is uh, speaking in a divisive type of way, which means to say bad things to uh, people about their friends or their partners. And what happens as a result of that? 
when I'm with you and I say something, oh, your friend, your partner, your husband, or your wife was such a terrible person, and so on, then what are you going to think? You're going to think, well, what does he say behind my back about me? So if we're always saying bad things about others, again, our relationships will break. People will leave us because they'll think that we're going to do the same thing and say bad things about them. Here, the motivation, of course, is that we want them to break up. The third one is uh, speaking in a harsh and cruel manner. If we're always yelling at others and swearing at them and uh, speaking in this very abusive type of way, others will start speaking to us in that way as well. And unless we're a masochist, nobody wants to be with somebody that's constantly yelling at them. And then the fourth one is idle chatter. If we're just talking all the time, blah, 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 and interrupting people and speaking about just absolutely nothing, nonsense, then what's the result? No one takes us seriously. People think that we're just a pain to be with, that we're just constantly talking, and we waste all our time, and we waste other people's time as well. So these are the four improper ways of uh, speaking. Lying, saying bad things about others so that we can get them to part, speaking harsh and cruel words, words that can hurt somebody, and idle chatter, blah, 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 blah. It's complete nonsense. Or it could also be gossiping, this type of thing, telling all sorts of things about other people, which is really none of their business. So, what would be right speech? We would want to apply discipline. Constructive speech is a speech that refrains from these four. So, the first level of discipline that we develop is that uh, when I feel like saying something which is untrue, or I feel like yelling at you, or I feel like just chattering away, to recognize that uh, this is destructive, this will cause unhappiness, and not do it. This is not so easy, because you have to catch yourself at the moment where you feel like doing it before you just compulsively do it. It's like, for instance, uh, you feel like having another piece of cake, so <laughs> before you just compulsively go to the uh, fridge or whatever to take it, to realize that even though I feel like this, so what? I don't have to act it out, and if I do act it out, I'll just become more and more fat. So I don't want that. And then you don't go to the refrigerator. I mean, sometimes we do have the opportunity to do that. I remember the other day, I uh, felt like having a piece of cake. That's why I'm using the example. I didn't have any in the house, so I was on my way home. And I started to go to my favorite place where they have the type of cake that I like very much. But as I was walking, so I had a space to think about it, I said, hey, but I, I'm trying to lose some weight, and I don't really need the piece of cake. Ethical discipline. So then I turned back and just went home. And that's what we're talking about in terms of discipline. Shantideva, a great uh, Indian Buddhist master, uses the uh, example, when you feel like doing these things, just remain like a block of wood. So I feel like yelling at you or saying something nasty to you, and I realize that that's just going to make me upset, make you upset, and then I just don't say it. Remain like a block of wood. I feel like uh, telling some stupid joke or making a stupid comment, and I realize that this is just idle chatter and I don't say it. This type of thing. Okay, that's the first level of ethical discipline that's involved here, which is to, when you feel like speaking in one of these four destructive ways, to remember that this will only cause unhappiness and problems, and don't say it. Don't say anything. But then the second level is the discipline to actually do what is constructive, so to speak in a constructive way. Again, from realizing that this will bring more happiness, make a more harmonious situation. So, what are we doing here? We're thinking in terms of cause and effect. So, cultivating right speech requires a very conscious effort and a strong resolution to speak truthfully, gently, kindly, at the appropriate time, and in the appropriate measure, and only what's meaningful. So, you don't constantly interrupt people with constantly calling them or constantly messaging them and so on about what you just had for breakfast or uh, 
oh, I don't like what uh, this person said, and so on. I mean, meaningless chatter, and it interrupts others. Or speaking in the appropriate measure, <laughs> I find that I have a problem with getting impatient with people. <laughs> Somebody tries to convince me of something to do with my website or with uh, whatever, and they explain it once, and I say, fine, I'll do that. And then they continue to try to convince me. <laughs> and they go on and on. But I've already said yes to this. So this is in the proper measure. When the person agrees, end of conversation. Go on to something else. <laughs> so we try to be helpful in the way that we speak and in a way that creates harmony rather than creating division. Now, of course, you have to use discrimination. I mean, all these three trainings fit together, so uh, speak truthfully. Well, if somebody is wearing an ugly shirt or an ugly dress, and you know it's really going to uh, hurt them, you don't just say, well, that really is ugly, or you are terrible. <laughs> so sometimes you have to be skillful. And again, it depends on the, uh, the person. <laughs> My sister was just uh, visiting me in Berlin, and we were going out somewhere, and she put on a, a blouse, and it was a little bit uh, stretched and so on. Well, it's my sister. I can say that, you know, that really looks terrible. You should put on another blouse. But if it was somebody else, you couldn't say that. So, I mean, again, you use your discrimination. What you can say to your sister is quite different from what you could say to uh, others. You wouldn't say that to your new girlfriend. That, uh, that's an ugly blouse you're wearing. You know, put on something else when you're going out on a date with them. And harsh language. You might need to say something strong. Let's say if uh, your child is playing with matches, fire, cigarette lighter, something like that. You have to speak strongly. But it's not harsh. Your motivation is not anger. And my motivation for not telling the truth in terms of that looks terrible is <laughs> not that I want to deceive the person. So motivation is very important. So we have the discipline, ethical discipline, self-discipline to refrain from destructive ways of speaking and the discipline to engage in constructive ways. Now, this is the classic presentation of these uh, destructive ways of speaking but uh, in a uh, program that I developed called Sensitivity Training, I uh, extended the analysis of these destructive ways of speaking to include not only directing destructive speech toward others, but also directing it toward ourselves or dealing with ourselves. So we need to think, I think, in a much broader way about these improper ways of speaking. So, lying. Lying can also include lying to others about our feelings or our intentions or deceiving myself about what my feelings are toward you or what my actual intention is toward you. We might be very nice with somebody and speak nicely and so on, saying I love you, etc. And we might even fool ourselves into thinking about that, but actually what we want is their money or something else. Uh, we are, in a sense, lying about deceiving. So that doesn't mean that we tell the person, well, actually, I don't love you, I just want your money. Uh, that's <laughs> a bit inappropriate, but uh, the thing is to examine in ourselves, have we been truthful about what we actually feel about somebody and what our intentions are with this person? If it is on the basis of a disturbing emotion, greed for their money, and so on. Uh, divisive speech. It's not only trying to say things that will part you from uh, your friends, but it can also be speaking so obnoxiously that it causes our friends to become disgusted with us and leave us. So it's not only that we're trying to make your friends leave you, but the way that we speak is so horrible. Like, for instance, always complaining that it drives everybody else away from us. You know, people who are constantly negative, always complaining, always saying how bad everything is, and so on. We don't want to be with them. So likewise, if we're always like that, who wants to be with us? Or speaking non-stop 
so that you don't even give the other person a chance to uh, <laughs> say anything. That also drives people away. I mean, I know people who speak like that, and I don't want to be with them particularly. So if I speak like that, nobody would want to be with me. So it's very important to say nice things about others, not just bad things and complain about them. Say nice things about others and to uh, be positive, not negative all the time. Then the uh, harsh language. We want to stop not only verbally abusing others, but stop verbally abusing ourselves. There are a lot of people who say terrible things to themselves. Oh, you're such an idiot. You're so stupid. You're so horrible. How can anybody like you? And so on. Very nasty things that if you said to somebody else, that would be very cruel. But it's very cruel directed toward us. It certainly doesn't make you any happier, does it? So, very important, our attitude toward ourselves and how we treat ourselves and how we speak to ourselves in our minds. And then, idle chatter. <laughs> it's not only wasting others' time and our own time by interrupting them with SMSs and Facebook posting and tweets about trivial things all the time. It's not only that. That's really idle chatter and it wastes their time, it wastes my time. But also in this category of gossip, which is another type of idle chatter, don't betray the confidence of others by revealing their private matters to other people. Somebody tells you in confidence that they're gay, or that they uh, have cancer, or whatever it might be. But keep it to yourself. I needed to tell somebody, but don't tell others. And then you immediately <laughs> tell everybody else. This is certainly idle chatter. It's betraying their confidence. But now we look at it in terms of ourselves, not to speak indiscriminately about our own private matters to others, our doubts, our worries, and so on. You don't need to share that, for instance, with your children. You're a parent, you have a, a young child, and you say, oh, but I'm so worried, how am I going to get enough to feed us? How am I going to pay the rent? I mean, you don't have to share that with your child. <laughs> or, oh, I'm having difficulty with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. Again, <laughs> certain people that you don't share that with. So we have to refrain from uh, speaking indiscriminately about our own things that are none of anybody else's business or that they're inappropriate to certain people. So this is uh, the first aspect here, right speech it's called. So think about that for a moment and then perhaps you have some questions. When we think about it, by the way, what you need to do is to review in your mind how do I actually speak with others? How do I speak to myself? Okay. I think we can extend this even further to the whole topic of uh, speaking in an appropriate way to appropriate people in situations. You know, there are certain situations and certain people in which you need to speak in a very polite way. There are other situations in which you would speak in a very informal way. So to speak informally in company where you need to speak politely, that's inappropriate, isn't it? It makes everybody uncomfortable. Or you try to explain something to a child, you have to explain in a way that the child can understand. You don't explain the same way you would explain it to a professor at a university. So what questions do you have about the way we communicate and the discipline that would be involved in refraining from speaking in destructive or inappropriate ways and the discipline involved with speaking in constructive ways and the discipline involved in speaking in a way that's going to be helpful to uh, others. Yeah. Uh, so my question is generally about discipline itself. When we're trying to train in discipline, it means that we will have some errors while doing it. And uh, my question is about how to react on this errors when they appear without blaming ourselves in a healthy way? Well, when we transgress, go against whatever uh, boundaries we've set, you know, discipline is involved with setting boundaries that uh, I'm going to not go beyond that boundary. So if we do go beyond the boundary, which inevitably we will, so I deceive you or I yell at you or whatever, then the first thing is that uh, we need to acknowledge that uh, I made a mistake. So first you have to acknowledge it. 
So that's being honest with yourself. And then there's a set of, of opponents that are used here is uh, then regret. Regret is very different from guilt. Regret is that I wish I hadn't said that, but it doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Guilt is identifying I'm a bad person, holding on what I said was so bad and not letting go. And then you resolve to uh, uh, try not to repeat it. And you reaffirm what direction you're going in, so your motivation that uh, I want to uh, avoid going beyond that boundary because uh, it just makes me unhappy, causes problems. You reaffirm that. And then you apply an opponent. So, for instance, if you yell at somebody, you apologize. You say, I'm sorry, I was really in a bad mood. I regret that. I hope that I won't repeat it. So you try to uh, counteract it. So it's very, very helpful as a guideline is when you call somebody, I mean, people are SMSing all the time and interrupting everybody, which is a terrible idle chatter type of thing of always interrupting people. But if you call somebody, first thing to say is, are you busy? Do you have a moment? Is this a good time? Check to see. Maybe they are busy. Maybe this isn't a good time. So don't just insist that what I have to say is so important that you have to drop everything and listen to me. This SMS habit, people get very angry if you don't answer it immediately. So it's the same type of thing. We assume that what we are asking or saying demands that they stop everything, read it, and answer it. It certainly makes for very bad concentration. You're not able to concentrate, so it's destructive to the other person and destructive to yourself because you think, I'm so important. So again, you would apologize to the other person for sending them completely meaningless unimportant SMSs and say, you know, I have a lonely SMS to you when it's really important. And please, you only answer if you have time. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, So the question is about uniting our positive motivation to help someone and our way of speaking. For example, if our motivation is to bring benefit to other person, but we need to speak in some not very gentle way, is it would be better for us just to keep silence or to say that thing which would be not so gentle but uh, with a positive motivation? No, definitely you need to say it in a very strong ways in certain situations. Like for instance, if your child is playing with a cigarette lighter. This example is not about the person who I'm talking to but for about some third person who is not here. So if we're speaking about some third person which might be with a bad character and should we uh, talk about him in this way? This is a very delicate subject because, uh, for instance, your uh, teenage child is uh, hanging around with friends who are into drugs or into stealing or whatever. And then it's very difficult because if you say bad things about their friends to a teenager, usually they'll rebel and do the exact opposite. So your motivation to divide them from their friends is uh, you want to benefit your child. It's not that uh, you want those friends for yourself. You're jealous. <laughs> but, uh, then, but then you need to be uh, skillful because uh, for them to leave their friends, you uh, basically have to get them motivated. And motivated by seeing that, uh, well, how is this affecting you? So this is not so easy. I think actually one needs to not so much focus on dividing them from the friends, but dividing them from the bad habits. Dalai Lama always points this out, that uh, you need to differentiate the person from their behavior. So you have to differentiate their friends as persons from the behavior of the friends. So, in that way, if they can see that always being into drugs or getting drunk all the time and so on is having a negative effect on them, then either they will stop hanging out with these people or even when being with them, they won't drink or take the drug. Because it's very difficult with teenagers. But more relevant things are people who are with misleading teachers or people who are with... uh, I'm thinking of an example of uh, somebody who was a financial advisor 
And the financial advisor basically just wants to make money off of you by, well, if you buy this stock or you buy this policy, they'll make 5%. So to warn somebody and say, you know, hey, this person, they're just going to try to sell you anything so that they can make a profit. So then, again, your motivation is to help this person, not to be taken advantage of. So what's more skillful is to, rather than saying this person is a bad person and just wants to make money off of you and cheat you, rather than that, you say just the reality. This person, whatever they sell you, is going to make 5% profit on it. So it is to his benefit to sell you something. So it is to your benefit to try to do investigation and figure out what they're recommending. Is it appropriate or not? So... You're not actually saying something bad about the person. You're just saying the reality that their main thing is to make a profit and they are trained to be friendly to you so that you'll trust them. Like somebody trying to sell you a used car. You never trust them. <laughs> they're just interested in selling the used car. They're not going to tell you what's wrong with it. They're going to just try to convince you by being friendly and so on to buy it. It's up to you to really test it out. So this is what you would say. Test it out. So, one last question. So, how to understand what is our real motivation? Because sometimes, in some cases, uh, on the surface, it may seem that we have a positive motivation to help someone, but deep inside, our motivation is destructive to... So, how to differentiate between them? Be honest with yourself and analyze, look more and more deeply. And the thing that is very, very helpful is to look at the definition of a disturbing emotion. It makes you lose your peace of mind. So in examining how you've been acting or speaking or dealing with a situation, is your energy calm or is it upset? So try to quiet down, to be sensitive enough to your energy to see, well, am I uneasy or not? Okay, so let's end here for today and we'll continue working through these uh, so-called Eightfold Path tomorrow. Thank you.